We're going to start today with a conversation with Tim Goleri from Sierra Ventures. I've known Tim for a long time, probably 15 years or more. Tim, it's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to catching up and introducing been, you to our it's audience. Been too long. Welcome. It's been too long. <laughs> My pleasure to be here. So, um, you know, I think we, we should start with uh, you introducing yourself as well as uh, Sierra to our audience. What um, What is your investing focus today? How big is the fund? What is the, you know, what what, uh, what are the things that you want to position uh, the fund as that our audience should know about? Yeah, absolutely. But firstly, it's a pleasure being here. And Sermana, you do such a wonderful job for uh, all the entrepreneurs globally. So thank you for uh, doing that and thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure and I apologize for the uh, informal setting. I'm in my home office um, uh, just uh, heading into work after this. Uh, so uh, I think the way uh, I'd like to maybe just spend a few minutes on my background and uh, how I came to be a venture capitalist and uh, I'll be happy to introduce uh, Sierra after that. So. Uh, when you said uh, the foothills of the Himalaya, that reminded me I'm actually originally from India, as you can probably tell from my accent. Um, uh, Guleri, my last name, is actually from Himachal. Um, I grew up in India and uh, uh, came to the U.S. for my master's degree, um, came to California, uh, and uh, started my job in the semiconductor industry um, and soon went into a software company called Scopus Technology, where I joined as an engineer and then went into sales and marketing, uh, ultimately taking that company public in 95, and uh, it was bought by Siebel Systems. So I got a taste of entrepreneurship and sort of got a sense of how it's done, and I started my own company uh, in, in 96 uh, called Octane Software, and um, Octane was in the customer service uh, area as, as the Internet was booming. So I scaled that up very quickly, uh, raised venture capital to learn how, what it's like to be an entrepreneur on the other side. And um, I ultimately, um, with, with the hard work and luck as these things always are sort of uh, tied together, I uh, ended up selling that company to a public company called Epiphany uh, for $3.2 billion. So that was a very good outcome for all investors. Uh, and then I uh, called, you know, crossed the proverbial um, DMZ to become a venture capitalist. And I think the principal reason was that uh, I think for, and I'll talk about Sierra here in a second, that I feel very strongly about uh, uh, thoughtful entrepreneurs that take a while to build a real business. And I felt, and I had the pleasure of having great entrepreneurs uh, turn VCs on the other side as my board members that provided such a great service uh, and, and thoughtful feedback I felt, I, felt, I felt that would be a natural, um, you know, succession of jobs for me. So I, I, uh, I ran into Sierra Ventures. Uh, this is now a 35-plus older firm um, uh, this year. Uh, we are investing our 11th fund. And so Sierra's um, focus, which was my passion and love, is enterprise-based uh, uh, companies. So these are companies that are building hardware or software for businesses. And we don't um, uh, really differentiate whether it's the top of the business market or the bottom, as long as the software or the hardware is for the business market, Sierra is interested. Um, so that is our investment focus. Uh, in terms of stage, uh, I like to say we like to come early and stay late. So we are very patient capital. 
uh, we like to be the first uh, institutional check in into these companies. And um, our size of investment is actually very flexible depending on what the business needs. Uh, so we'll write anywhere from a 500K check um, all the way till, um, you know, um, 11, 12 million dollars given that we do series A and B principally. Uh, but we ensure that we have plenty of reserves to help scale our companies. I've been lucky uh, to uh, take a couple of companies public. Uh, in fact, a company in India called Make My Trip where I'm still on the board and that's a multi-billion dollar market cap company today, uh, et cetera. So that's a bit about Sierra and my background um, and I'll let you uh, lead the conversation from here. Tim, how big is the Sierra fund now? This 11 uh, you know, fund? We, uh, yeah, fund 11 is $175 million approximately. And our thesis is that uh, we, we think that uh, technology and businesses and the business investment that climate is a, uh, you know, secular trend in terms of disruption. But these cycles where we try to capture and, 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 and uh, capture entrepreneurship are probably two to three years long. So we tend to uh, structure our funds in this 175 to $200 million bucket, invest them in three years in the right kind of companies, and then raise the, uh, raise the next fund uh, from the, and we are very lucky to have a very stable set of limited partners, so um, it's a relatively straightforward process. And uh, double click for us on the stage question. You sure. like to be the first money, first institutional money in. Uh, what do you like to see? Let's say you are doing a Series A deal. What do you like to see in it um, in terms of metrics, in terms of validation, in terms of team? What are the requirements to qualify for your definition of a Series A? Definitions are varying greatly these days. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's actually a very, very good question and a very tough one to answer because um, uh, and I'll, I'll try to frame it for you because I think um, if you look at our last fund, almost a third of the fund in terms of the number of deals we did were seed investments. So these were anything less than $2 million mm -hmm. of, of uh, initial check. This could be literally a 500K check. It could be a $2 million check. And typically what we, uh, the, what we call seed and what we look for is um, obviously the very early companies, but this is we, we get convinced as a partnership that this is a team that is doing something very interesting and that if we give them some initial help, guidance, and by the way, we have a network of 80 CIOs on our advisory board so we can connect them to these people that are spending billions of dollars in IT. Uh, and if these guys can execute to a couple of business metrics, maybe the first customer at a particular average selling price, that's interesting we can see our way to a very large company. So it's like a seeding strategy. But the mm -hmm. difference and the key here is, Ramana, we our seeds are not flyers. So in other words, we're not saying, hey, here's some seeds and, you know, um, uh, we're, we're, we're just going to let you kind of wander in the forest yourself. Our seeds are very uh, directed. Uh, they're very um, uh, thematic. And we believe in our seeds as much as we believe in the uh, Series A. But the ideas are a little still unformed, and maybe they don't have the first couple of customers. They might have some technology that's built. But we believe as, as ex-entrepreneurs that we can see something there. So that's what a seed definition is. 
Series A is uh, much more evolved. These companies typically have, you know, a dozen to, you know, sometimes, you know, 30, 40 customers. Um, a good example of that might be one of the companies that are done uh, in the cloud data processing space called Treasure Data. Uh, this is a Japanese company, uh, two Japanese founders, phenomenal entrepreneurs, um, Hiro and Kaz. And uh, we led Series A uh, back in 2013. Uh, and this company already had 30 customers, but God mm -hmm. was really looking for, and here we're looking for, how do we scale this to a large business? And mm -hmm. and so that was a prototypical um, Series A for us. Uh, maybe the company at the time was doing, um, you know, 100 or maybe 150K in MRR. Uh, so that, those are the two definitions that uh, the way we look at a Series A or a Series C. And um, you have some thematic um I guess expertise would be the right word. What are those? If you look at where you're, uh, you have really deep relationships, maybe these CIO relationships, what sectors would those be? Because we are, we are seeing a lot of vertical deals these days. You know, there's obviously yeah. horizontal, but there's a lot of yeah. vertical deals coming up all the time. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, I've been um, uh, in, in the tech business, I guess, since I graduated college, and I've never been this excited by uh, what's going on in industry because uh, we, we talk about our interest in the space in three buckets. Uh, Sermana, one is um, uh, infrastructure. Uh, this would be uh, like cloud and edge and wireless, and these are next generation technologies that are uh, sort of embedded inside these technologies uh, and these devices. So. An example that everybody could relate with uh, could be the you know little fingerprint sensor that uh, was on the old iPhone and is on the new iPad, et cetera. So uh, we, my partner, Ben Yu, who's a PhD in physics from Princeton, um, is the specialist in this, uh, in this uh, edge software and edge computing because it takes very, very precise software to actually detect your fingerprint. And that particular company was our company that was bought by Apple to provide that capability. So that is what we call infrastructure at the edge, if you may. Mm -hmm. Then the next bucket is intelligence, and this is all the data and all the AI and all the ML that is being sort of talked about uh, de jour. Uh, but we've obviously been doing this for a long time. In fact, Teradata, which is the granddaddy of big data, was our company uh, well before my time at Sierra. But then uh, we did um, Green Plum, which became uh, now Pivotal, uh, which is EMC uh, today. Uh, EMC acquired that company. And we have a whole host of companies on top of that that are next generation AI and data processing companies. So infrastructure, intelligence, and industries, which is I think the, the point that you were making, which is verticals, in which there's massive disruption that's gonna happen in the business processes that are actually in these, in these verticals. So, uh, infrastructure, intelligence, and industries are the three buckets. And in the latter two uh, would be what typically people talk about, kind of the data center infrastructure and business applications. And, you know, I, I uh, particularly like SaaS businesses. I'm on seven SaaS boards, uh, ranging from companies doing, you know, close to $100 million in, in uh, annual recurring revenue, all the way down to uh, a, a new investment I just did uh, where uh, to see the investment, but it's just they have three customers, but they're all software as a service uh, business models. So in the business context, software context, infrastructure intelligence and industries 
Underlying that, we have ADCIO relationships and CPO relationships. This would be the CIO of Merkin Company. This is, could be the CIO, CTO of Facebook, uh, of, of um, you know, a whole bunch of pharma companies, uh, um, Bosch, uh, so, so uh, like hardcore industry. And depending on what business we are looking to invest in, we'll match them with the right mentor to get next generation advice on what's going on in that particular vertical that could be helpful for the entrepreneur. So the CIO advisory board is, by the way, now 14 years old. It's the largest, uh, certainly in the Silicon Valley, and because we are very, we are very much specialists in B2B, I think it mm -hmm. provides a fantastic resource for entrepreneurs. Great. And, and also, I think uh, in, in a lot of cases, uh, businesses that are selling into the enterprise have the structure of a big deal. You know, the ASPs are larger, and, yeah. and when you have larger ASPs, often it is easier to build companies for less money because the cash flows differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I used to, I used to tell my, uh, when I was CEO, I used to uh, have the saying to my sales guys and my company in general that, uh, you know, uh, revenue is a really good deodorant, so uh, I don't care what shape or size you bring me revenue in, whether it's a customer contract and consulting or uh, direct consulting. So I, I really encourage my uh, portfolio companies that venture capital is interesting just to stabilize your business, but you can't depend on that. You have to ultimately get you know revenue from from customers, and that's really what it's all about. So um, what about geography? You started off by saying that you're on the board still of a company that was an Indian market-facing company, not just a company yeah. that originated in India and went global, but it was an Indian market-facing company. So it seems yeah. like that's within your investment thesis. Yeah, so, you know, we, uh, we believe uh, as a partnership that, um, that, that to build a large company, so in the context of what is large, uh, you could say maybe at the minimum getting to 100 million in, in ARR to 200, 300 million, because ultimately uh, the public markets just care about two things, growth and ultimate EBITDA. Uh, yeah. And everything in the middle, gross margin, expenses, that's something that, you know, obviously uh, we help and we care about with entrepreneurs. So when you look at the global, uh, those sort of metrics that you have to produce, you have to have a global perspective on the market in which you're building a company. So for instance, if I'm about to invest in a company that's building a next generation data processing engine like the treasure data example I'd give you, we, we have and, and we currently are already selling in, in international markets. So uh, the fact that Hero and Cars were from, uh, from Japan uh, and the engineering team happened to be in Japan, uh, but they were building the core business in the U.S. because U.S. is the largest data market and then Japan is number two. I really yeah. took that as a huge uh, positive. So we're, we're actually 100%, uh, we don't care at all where the company is physically based. Um, our okay. view is that if you like the business and the, and the overall idea and the entrepreneur has the gumption and the confidence to, to attack a global market. Uh, we want to be partners um, and bring our network from the U.S. to bear on that. Um, yeah. And then, then obviously help them Pac-Man because it's a very precise dance you have to do which markets you move into, when do you move into them, how do you move into them. Uh, mm -hmm. So we actually, uh, sitting in Silicon Valley for 35 plus years, uh, will, we're completely agnostic to geography. In fact, uh, 
We were doing the stat the other day. If you look at Fund 10, which is fully invested now, uh, some 65, 70% of the deals are actually outside the Bay Area. Uh, my mm -hmm. last deal, uh, in fact, I'm going to be in Tel Aviv in two weeks, uh, was from Tel Aviv. Um, I've deals in, and, uh, you know, we as a partnership have deals in Canada. Uh, my partner, Mark Fernandez, has done a couple of deals in Canada. Um, so, yeah, we're very, very open to global entrepreneurs, and which is why it's really exciting to be on your call because I know this is a format for getting out yeah. to all those great entrepreneurs out there. Yeah, and, you know, this week, uh, do you know Stefan Dietrich uh, is the founder of Neolane? That was yeah. uh, one of those rare European uh, enterprise software companies that made it global and then found an American exit into Adobe, very solid exit. So yeah. uh, it's, it's good to see that it's happening actually in different parts of the world now, not just in the U.S. and not just in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you mentioned something here, which I want to just touch on briefly. So I'll give you two quick 30-second examples. So one of uh, my first investments uh, with my partner, Mark Fernandez, which we did was a company called Sourcefire. This is a security company based in Washington, D.C., and I still remember when we, a uh, very competitive Series A, when we wrote the check and won the deal and got the mandate with Marty Roche, one of the things we told Marty is, hey, you do keep doing what you do in D.C. We'll bring you all the networks because this is where we live. We live in Silicon Valley, and this is where the largest, you know, tech companies happen to be. Now, you fast forward the clock nine years from that investment. We took the company public. It ultimately got bought by Cisco right here, you know, in, in San Jose. And those are relationships we had for, you know, $2.4 billion. So that's, uh, I think the, I want to underscore uh, what networks mean. So entrepreneurs need to be thinking about what beyond capital can the VC uh, offer. Uh, and I think that that's very uh, instructive. So that's one quick point. The other is, I think um, the value of how to think about what this company should be called in the context of the market is also something which uh, we find we add incremental value in because a customer uh, a CEO might come into the U.S. market and think this is how they want to talk about this product and the company, but knowing the, how, how the big players are moving and what the technology is and which other startups are in that sector that might become competitive or are already competitive, you know, we give them some advice that if I were you, I'd sort of call it differently. And I think those things matter a lot, and you, it's very nuanced. So getting an investor uh, that has a perspective, and by the way, there are some great investors, other investors as well here in the Valley uh, that, that know what they're doing in this particular space. So you have the benefit of that, and I highly encourage entrepreneurs to uh, make that uh, uh, see if they get that option to go for those sort of uh, uh, VCs and that kind of VC dollars. Tim, uh, you have, as we spoke for the last 20 minutes, you have already cited some of your highlights of the portfolio. Do you want to talk about other companies that were really interesting companies out of your portfolio that are emblematic of how you invest, what you like to invest in, how you think, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I talked about the three buckets. Um, uh, so I'll give you examples uh, in all three. That way, you know, uh, the audience, uh, depending on what, they, what they're doing, can, can relate to those buckets. So the uh, first one I, I give you an example of was next generation infrastructure. So this would be uh, as drones are flying in the sky and next generation cell phones and, you know, uh, what we call the moving data center, which is the car. 
um, or, or you know, geostationary satellites. All these next generation physical infrastructure devices have, have very unique needs for um, um, software which runs inside of them, right? And uh, so, we, uh, so I gave you examples of uh, Ben's practice, my partner Ben Yu's practice, which had these, uh, Ben is really easy to understand or introduce because I just say, hey, look at your cell phone, that device, uh, the motion sensor, which sits in, the, in those devices were also Ben's uh, investment company called InventSense, uh, which uh, we just sold a few um, uh, quarters ago uh, to a Japanese company, uh, TDK. I think that was a $1.2 billion deal. Uh, but that's uh, in the history. Uh, more recently, we've done uh, companies in the 5G wireless space, a company called Movandi, um, next generation data center space, a company called Cnex. Uh, which makes the lossless uh, storage controller uh, very, very uh, phenomenal companies. Um, and in security, for instance, a company called Zimperium, which does uh, mo the mobile edge protection. So these are next generation infrastructure companies. Moving to the second bucket, which is, I mentioned, intelligence. Uh, there we have a lot of history, you know, with the uh, examples I was giving you, like Greenplum and Teradata. In that we've done new investments. So, uh, you know, cleaning data when it comes into the data center is really important mm -hmm. and making sure that it's got, you know, full genealogy. So we are very mm -hmm. excited about a company called Zaloni, which my partner Mark has, Mark has done. Uh, cloud data processing, I already mentioned, uh, treasure data. And next generation ML and AI companies, uh, we've done a company that's we spun out of UCLA called uh, Falcon Computing. Um, it's an infrastructure for doing next generation AI. And then an AI application company, this is a Tel Aviv company I'm super excited about called Apply Tools. Um, and uh, they're in the um, uh, application UI testing space, uh, 300 customers, very exciting uh, use of AI uh, in, that, in that context. And then finally, uh, industries, which is the third bucket, uh, this is where you're disrupting a business process with new techniques uh, using AI, et cetera. So we've done, um, in the vertical, we've done, for instance, a company called Hired.com, which you might have heard about. They're, uh, yeah. uh, they're disrupting the hiring process. Now, you might think, wow, that seems like pretty old school, but the way they're doing it, they have a different business model and they have a different technology. So now they're serving 3,000 customers and going really fast. So those are some examples in those three buckets that we're super excited by. And if you look at the last 15 months, you know, let's say all of 2017 and the first quarter of 2018, yeah. what trends do you see in your deal flow that are worth calling out? You know, um, I, I think, um, so certainly I, I don't think entrepreneurs uh, ever sleep so that, you know, there's no dearth of deal flow. I mean, it's, it's actually stunning to me uh, how many amazing companies are popping out. I think, um, uh, there's most definitely a theme for using a vertical use of AI um, in those uh, dimensions I just talked about. So there are many companies that are popping out that are saying, okay, supply chain, CRM, sales process, uh, expense management, whatever the case may be, how do we take true AI um, and, 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 you know, incrementally disrupt uh, that, that, that workflow. And so uh, these are companies that are not process-centric. These are more predictive in nature, and they're doing their ROI is very compelling when you put them on top of these business processes. So we're seeing that as a very defined trend. Um, 
I think some entrepreneurs are trying to also reimagine these applications entirely. So uh, kind of the point I'm trying to make there is when I was a CEO, my frame of reference on top of which I built the application was a database, right? So this was Oracle or Sybase and, you know, you build tables and you stitch together workflows. But imagine for a second that you don't have the database as a reference architecture, but you have AI and intelligence as a, as a base architecture. So in that context, the way you would build a business application would be quite different, right? So some entrepreneurs are actually taking it to that level and, and building it on these intelligence layers. And I think mm -hmm. you're going to see massive disruption coming out. Uh, it's going to take a little while, but I, we're starting to see the beginnings of that. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, blockchain and, and um, uh, you know, those kind of conversations in the context of, of the enterprise. It's still early, um, but I think, you know, we'll see some interesting companies come from there. But I'm, I'm very, very bullish on, um, you know, sort of AI techniques disrupting, uh, you know, classic domains. Biggest trend we've seen ever, probably. Sorry? In enterprise software. AI is the biggest trend we've seen ever in enterprise software. That is correct. That is correct. It's taking all the old rules, throwing it out the window, and um, having entrepreneurs really look at it. Now, I will say that um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, painting, uh, uh, you know, sort of a different color on, on an old technology. Um, so we look very deeply when a team comes and says we're AI. Uh, the good news is, you know, with Sierra and, and the big data, that, you know, sort of history we have, we can really go quite deep into if it, this, this is truly a, a smart team in that domain. Uh, mm -hmm. There are quite a few pretenders, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. So um, Always, right? Always. Yeah, when yeah. there's a buzzword that is popular, everybody slaps at the <laughs> buzzword on every deal possible. That is correct. That is correct. So uh, last question before we switch to the mentoring part of the program today. Uh, Tim, are you chasing unicorns? Uh, actually, no. Um, uh, that, uh, Sramana, is something that um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of because, you know, ultimately unicorns are, it's an easy term to, you know, for, for very late stage investors to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to invest in X company at Y billion dollar valuation. And I feel that does a disservice to so much of value creation that happens underneath uh, that, that top of the pyramid. Because if you look at the classic and the best returns that venture capital has posted, it actually doesn't come from these, these you know, quote unquote unicorn type companies yeah. where they're very few and far between. So a lot of the outcomes actually happen in that sort of, you know, call it a billion dollar and south or even $2 billion in South kind of um, outcomes. And these are companies that have fundamentally strong businesses. They're growing 80 to 100%. They're triangulating to be EBITDA positive. Um, and then those are the kind of companies we like to build. So I don't, I don't actually care. I mean, if somebody asked me, uh, I'd say we're in the business of building companies. Ultimately, uh, whether it's a unicorn or not is not something I worry about because for me it's just, executing in that Series A, Series B, Series C, fundamental value, service your customers, and come early and stay late, which is where I started. So um, uh, I, don't, I don't focus on that word too much. The concern I have is, you know, the, the traditional classic venture capital um, 
does run into some problems when these late-stage investors come in with huge amounts of money and kind of disrupt the cap table, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think they, they do it if you let them, right? So in our case, uh, we we've, uh, we haven't uh, entertained. We obviously get a lot of inbound interest where some will, you know, come in and dangle, um, you know, $50, $100 million in front of one of our companies. And I tell entrepreneurs that, you know, why would you take on load on your cap table ahead of you? Because remember, they're sitting in common and all these pressures are stacking yeah. up. Uh, it makes no sense. So I always tell entrepreneurs, uh, build your business, try to skip the next round. So I always tell them that if we do our job, we'll skip the B, uh, and we'll raise money at a high valuation, but the right amount of money. So I'm not a big big fan of overfunding um, uh, investments. I know there was a, a lot of a chatter about, uh, uh, I forget who said it, but uh, I think it was kind of, uh, the case for a fat um, startup, or well, I don't know what they call it. You might know that that acronym that they're using, but effectively saying that hey, just overfund your way to success, and um, you know you might get away with a deal here or there where that formula works, but by and large, all companies zigzag their way to final success, and and on the way down, that extra capital load is horrendous for entrepreneurs, and it's not something that I recommend. We absolutely hate this kind of, uh, you know, deal structure. But the problem that that has happened is that, you know, in in what you use the word dangle, right? These late stage investors dangle a lot of yeah. capital. Sometimes they dangle liquidity in front of the founders, and the founders maybe have been at it for five, seven years, and they want that liquidity, and that is one of the ways they are getting into these deals, and and corrupting the cap tables, which yeah. is not really healthy for anybody. After that, it's not healthy for yeah. anybody. I'll give you a 30-second example because this is real time, and then we can switch to your, your presenting company. So this was just a company of mine um, uh, which um, had a Series A, and they're in that third mm -hmm. bucket industries and process. So they went from 1.5 to 4 to 8 to 16. I'm giving you exit ARR numbers. Okay. Yeah. And they're tracking okay. to about call it 30 to 32 million this year. Yeah. Their growth from eight to 16, they only burnt three million dollars. So it's a real business. Awesome. 150 customers, enterprise. He had multiple term sheets, but this entrepreneur had the discipline to say, "I don't." He actually did a kind of here's what I need for the next 18 to 24 months. It was 12 million dollars. He said, okay, I'm going to take time and a half that, so it's what of 18 to 20. And there mm -hmm. were people putting 25, 30 in front of him. He did not take it. In fact, he refused those term sheets and took something much different. Um, so I think if entrepreneurs have that discipline and confidence, um, I love those kind of companies because ultimately he's doing himself and his employees a favor. And obviously, I think if we, we are along for the ride, we will all do well. Um, so you've got to have discipline, yeah. And the, and the market, the public market, has really been very much in favor of companies like the ones that have done followed that strategy. Atlassian has done very well in the public market. Yeah. Uh, Viva. Viva was built for three million dollars well, cash. I mean, I mean, Mulesoft actually, Sermon is a great Mulesoft, example. Yes. So Mulesoft by the way, hats off to that entrepreneur uh, and and Greg and uh, the CEO because. 
B2BI. Great entrepreneur. Right. B2BI yeah. is not a sexy category. This company started in 2008, right? right? And everybody talks about, so this is the zig and the zag I was talking about. The, ultimately, the reason the company got bought by Salesforce uh, was that the timing was right, but fundamentally, Salesforce was looking for scale in this space yeah. and got it uh, by buying this company. And uh, there's an example of, of if you keep your PNL up and to the right, you're tracking, again, markets only care about growth and ultimate EBITDA. And I think if you keep that track and, and, and keep your business, um, you know, growing and not burning too much of cash, good things happen. So uh, that's a great example as well. Excellent. That's a superb uh, discussion. Uh, 